Let me just say happy Father's Day. How many dads do we have here today? All right, quite a few. Let's stand up. Dad, stand up. Let's give him a hand. Stay up, stay up. Father, we bless every dad here today. Stretch your hands out to these dads. Father in heaven, we bless each father here today. We ask that you would make them into the dads and fathers that you have designed and destined them to be, that they would be great examples for their children, that they would be the, the, the leaders in their home, and Lord, they would set the standard for what dads should look like to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, that's a big responsibility, right? You say amen, you just owned it. No take backs. Okay, today I want to, uh, uh, two weeks ago I, I had a message from glory to glory from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 as our launching pad. I want to go back to there today, and this will be part two, but really it's so from glory to glory part two, but the title of my message, I have one point today, it's called Only Jesus. It's Only Jesus. And so I've got a couple little, like little sub points you might say, but uh, we're going to look at the story uh, of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration today, and we're going to look at Matthew's version. It's in Matthew 17. You can also find this in Luke 9 and Mark 9, so it's in those three Gospels. But there's a verse that just really, really kind of the, the Holy Spirit breathed on this week for me. I thought it's in Matthew chapter 17, verse 8. It said, when they looked up or lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. They saw no one but Jesus only. And so, as we talk about transformation today, I, we're going to go to that story. I'll read it here in a few minutes. But I want to go back and, and just kind of go through 2 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, and those last few verses in that, uh, the leading up to verse 18. So, uh, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to 2 Corinthians 3, now, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but... In the chapter, uh, the Apostle Paul starts out, and he's really comparing law and grace in this chapter, as a lot of his writings do. And he's talking about that law, uh, which he calls the ministry of condemnation. And then he says that, that grace is called, he says, the ministry of the Spirit. He says, if the, and he also calls it the ministry of death. And then he calls grace the ministry of life. So he's got... Uh, condemnation and death, and he's got the spirit and life on this side. And he says, if the, if the ministry of death and condemnation has glory, like there was a glory to the law, he said, if that had glory, how much more is the glory that remains? Because the glory that came with the law was a decreasing glory. And if you'll remember, it says in that chapter, it says that that when Moses came off of Mount Sinai, he had to put a veil over his face. And because he put this veil over his face to not let the children of Israel see the glory that was disappearing. And so it was a, a decreasing and disappearing glory. He said, but nonetheless, it was glory. But he said, but when you compare that glory to the glory of the new covenant, the glory that the old covenant had actually seems like it had no glory at all because it's such a vast comparison. And so if, the, if, the, if the, the old covenant was here, 
you could go up into the, the clouds, and that would be the glory of the new covenant. And he said that, that the, 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 the veil that Moses put, he said it, it covered this, this glory that was, was disappearing. And so at the end of chapter 3, he goes in and says this in verse 14, talking about the, the children of Israel, says, Their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away. Everybody say, taken away. The veil is taken away in Christ. So if you are in Christ, guess what you don't have? You don't have a veil. It says, because in Christ, the veil is gone. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Verse 16. Next slide. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, so how do I get in Christ? It says, if in Christ the veil is taken away, then this verse says, when one does what? Turns to the Lord. So it says, when one turns to the Lord, when you accept Jesus, when you get saved, when you're placed in Christ, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, it's interesting that in Galatians chapter 4, Paul says this, it says this in verse 9, he says, how is it to those of you that have known God, so remember we just talked about knowing God's ways, he says, how is it to you, you that have known God, or rather are even known by God, how is it that you want to turn again to the weak, and beggarly elements, how is it that you desire to be in bondage? And then he goes on to talk about what they were doing to follow the law. And so here's what happens. As a believer, you can turn to Jesus, you're in Christ, and spiritually the veil's been lifted. But then what happens is once you've been made righteous, once you've been placed in Christ, we think that it's up to us to maintain and stay that way. And we begin to says, how can you that were there that knew God, that were known by God, how can you turn again back to those weak, have no power in your life? Beggarly means they have no influence. They're, 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 they're in poverty, those things. And he says it actually puts you in bondage. So you have a choice. Once you've made a choice to, to turn to Jesus, the veil gets removed, you still have to continue to stay there. You have not to, not to stay saved, but you have to stay Stay there to continue to see what it is that he wants to show you next. Because the tendency is to turn back. He says, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Who's the Spirit? The Lord. Tells us that. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Verse 18 says this. It said, but we all, we have a veil or no veil? No veil. If you're in Christ, no veil. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the transformation, if you remember last week, I told you that the quote by uh, Max Lucado, it says that, that God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. And that God's design for you is to instantly change you the day you get saved, and then the remainder of your life and your walk with him is to continue to make you more like Jesus on the outside, on the way you act, the way you think, the way you, you, you feel and, react and interact with other people. And so that God loves you where you're at, God loves you the way you are, but he also loves you too much to let you stay the same every day. He wants you to continually be conformed to the image of Jesus. 
And it tells us here that says that this transformation, it's, it's uh, done by the Holy Spirit so that you can't do it. Uh, the word transform is actually in the passive voice, which means that it's somebody else doing it for you. And he tells us in this verse who it is. It's the Holy Spirit is the one that actually changes you and makes you more like Jesus. It's not your spouse. As much as you know, your spouse may want to change you, uh, I know my wife for many years wanted to change me, and she probably still does. But I'm getting better. But no matter how much she tried, guess what she can't do? She can't change me. No matter how much you try to change somebody, you can't change them. You can't change you. See, you got to want to, but you can't do it. And, and according to this verse, it says that all you need to do, it says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Your job is not doing. Your job is not acting. Your job is not any of that. Your job is beholding Jesus, who is the glory of the Lord. And it says when you do that, he begins to transform you into the same glory and from one glory to another. And, and so last week we even talked about that the glory, it, it's, it's an increasing glory right? The glory of God is actually infinite. It doesn't decrease. And so that when you get to one level, stay there until he's finished with you and then go to the next level and stay there until he's finished with you and then go to the next level. It's increasing, which is different from the glory of the law because it said the glory that was on Moses was decreasing. And what a lot of times we try to do is we try to use something that was a decreasing glory to make an increasing change. And that doesn't work. You can't, you can't take something that's going down and use it to bring increasing change. And so Jesus brought another way. He brought another way called grace. He came uh, and he delivered that to us and he did it for us. It says in the Amplified Version, it says, continually seeing as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are progressively being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to even more glory. The word transform, it comes from a compound word in the Greek, meta, meaning change. Similar to like, uh, you know the word repent is metanoia, to change your mind. Uh, this comes from two words, metamorphe, which means to change your form, to change in form. So it's, it's a change in form. And we only see this word a couple times in the New Testament. We see it in chapter 3, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians. But we also see it in Romans chapter 12 too. You're familiar with this word, verse. It says, do not be conformed to this uh, world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we see it there. And we also see it in two of the gospel stories about the transfiguration. So Matthew's account and Mark's account, where it says that Jesus was transfigured before them. That word transfigured is the exact identical same word as transformed. And so that's why we're going to look at that story today. We're going to look at Matthew's version today because I think there's some things in the story that, uh, actually there's one thing, it's, it's only, I should have, my title's only Jesus. So there's one thing in that story that will, will help you and, and help change you as you walk with the Lord. And so I want to read it to you today before we uh, go through it. Let me just read you a few verses. Uh, they're not going to, we're not going to go there yet. 
but it starts at the last verse of chapter 26, I'm sorry, 16, Matthew 16, and the last verse of Matthew 16, and we're going to read down through um, verse 8 is where we're going to stop, but it continues on a little farther. Verse 28 says this, Assuredly I say to you, there are many standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a, great, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they had lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. I'll just read down through verse 13. And it says, Now they came down from the mountain, and Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? And Jesus said, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things, talking about in the future. But then he also points backwards and he says, But I say to you, Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, and did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then verse 13 says, The disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And we know, of course, we know John the Baptist says, Came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Okay. So we have this story, and it says that, that Jesus said, in verse 28, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death, so you're not going to die, you're going to remain alive until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, Luke's version, they all say it a little bit different. Luke's version says that there's some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom. This version says, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And Mark chapter 9, verse 1 says it a little bit different. It's something I want to point out. It says that, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God come in power. Now, I find that interesting because the word power is dunamis, miracle working power. And, and what, have the, what have the disciples already seen and experienced? Miracles, right? They saw Jesus take and feed the 5,000. They saw him take five loaves of bread and two fish, break them, hand them to the disciples. And as the disciples handed them out, they multiplied, fed the crowd, took up 12 baskets afterward. They saw the power of God. They, they, they saw Jesus do this. He would say this. If I cast out Satan by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come on you, or come upon you. And so that when Jesus cast out a demon, he said that's an expression of the power of the kingdom of God. And he tells them in Luke 10, he says, when you go out, I want you to preach the gospel, cast out demons, heal the sick, 
And he says, when you heal the sick, say this, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so all of these things that they've seen miracles, they've seen Jesus, he gave them, it says in Luke 9, 1, it says he gave them power and authority to cast out demons, heal the sick, and preach the gospel. They had been given power. They had seen power. They watched Jesus cast out demons and say the spirit or the kingdom of God has come. And he told them when they healed the sick to say the kingdom of God has come. But now he's saying that there is something different that they haven't seen before. It literally means, I think he's saying that there's going to be another dimension of power different than the, what, the power that you've seen up to this point. Because they had seen power. They had seen the miracles. But Jesus says this, there's some standing here that won't die until you see the kingdom come with power. If you think about everything they saw as an expression of power up to that point, they were all external expressions of power. Healing. Deliverance. Multiplication of food. All external. But there's coming a power that's actually going to be working on the inside that you've never seen before. There's coming a power of the Holy Spirit. There's coming a power of the gospel. Paul said this, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, two times in the Bible it says that you're transformed, or once it says you're transformed from glory to glory. And in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from one level of faith to another. And I really believe that as you deepen your understanding of the righteousness of God in your life, it actually is the thing that transforms you from glory to glory. That as you're released into this greater understanding of what Jesus did for you, it's the very thing that begins to allow the Holy Spirit to change you. And he says there's a power coming that's going to work on the inside that's internal that will now, it's not just going to be an outward expression, but it's going to be something on the inside that works from the inside out. And you haven't seen that yet, but you're going to see it. And in verse 2 he says this, he says, or verse 1, after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He didn't take everybody. I think I've told you this before, every revelation is not for everybody. He even told them when they came down on the mountain, he says, don't tell anybody what you saw until after the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Sometimes when we get a word from God, we just want to be the first one to blab it to everybody. But sometimes that word's for you, for the season you're in, and after that season is over, then you're able to share that with other people. But sometimes we release the, the, the right word in the wrong season. And he says that he took those three up by themselves because he wanted to show them something. There's something he wants to reveal to them. And he says Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Actually, the word transfigured here is in the passive tense, which means he didn't transfigure himself. He was transfigured by somebody else, just like we are. 
If you read Mark's gospel, it says this. I'm sorry, Luke. Luke says, as he prayed, none of the other versions say, but he was praying, but he's actually taking them up to pray. Luke chapter 9 says this. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. Do you think there's a connection between prayer and the release of what God has on the inside of you? As he prayed, he was transformed. And it said that he let, leads them up on a mountain, and he was transfigured before them. And so the miracle here is this. Imagine that for three years, the Holy Spirit has been present in the life of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, on top Mount Hermon, some people say it was Mount Tabor, but either way, on top of the mountain, all of a sudden, God begins to open up and reveal what's been present all along. See, they're, they're so used to seeing Jesus as he is. They're used to seeing what he does. But now God gives them a glimpse of something that up until that day had been veiled by his flesh. And I think that the, the, the point to us is this. When Jesus says, the same glory you've given me, I've given them. And Isaiah said that you were created for his glory. That when you carry the glory of God, that's actually in you. So everything that you read about Jesus showing them and giving them a glimpse of what's on the inside, that's in you. Paul says, the mystery that has been hidden for the ages, has now been revealed, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so that when Jesus gives them a revelation of what's actually in him, he's letting you know, hey, this is what's in you. And what's in you is so powerful and so infinite, it has the ability to flow through you and to change anything in your life. There's nothing in your life that the glory of God and Jesus cannot change. Verse 3 says, Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And so here he is on, on, the, uh, he's on the mountain. He's praying. All of a sudden, he begins to transfigure. He's transformed in front of them. And as his glory is revealed, as his face begins to shine, as his clothes become whiter, then the whitest white, all of a sudden Moses and Elijah appear with him. Now, who were they talking to? Look in verse 3. Moses and Elijah appeared to them, but they were talking with who? They were talking with Jesus. Moses, we read the other things. They're actually, I think Luke says that they were talking about what he would accomplish in Jerusalem. They're actually talking about his, his death, burial, and resurrection. So they're talking to Jesus. And what does Peter do? Peter answered. Well, the, guess who they weren't talking to? They weren't talking to Peter. They were talking to Jesus. And so the first rule is, don't answer when you're not spoken to. So we see Peter do this a lot in his B.C. days. So uh, actually, in some of the other stories, it says this. When, because Peter didn't know what to say, he answered and said this. That's another dumb move. If you don't know what to say, just wait. 
wait, it'll come. But don't just, blah. But what's he do? It's good for us to be here. I wasn't asking you, Peter. It said, Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. And if you want to, let's make three tabernacles. So these tabernacles, don't think of like the, uh, the tabernacle of Solomon. That's, one, that's not what that is. This would be a, 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 what was called a booth that was used for the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, which was made up of branches. It was more of a temporary shelter, like a tent shelter made of branches. And he said, let's make three of those. This, is, this is, sounds like a good idea. Here's Jesus. He's in his glory. Here's Moses. Here's Elijah. They're in glory. They're talking to him. And he said, hey, I have a brilliant idea. I just thought of a good friend of mine that um, he was actually the, the founder of this church way back in the when, Brian Bolt. And when he would, I just kind of, when I said brilliant, when I would, I found out later, every time I'd come up with an idea, he'd say, that's brilliant. I found out later, when he said it's brilliant, that was, that was his way of saying that's stupid. <laughs> and so once I got in on the joke, I, I got it, but I, I didn't realize I was the joke for a long time. Do you ever have one of those friends like that? It says, Peter said, hey, I got an idea. Let's make three tabernacles. I've got this great idea. We're going to make a booth for Jesus. We're going to make a booth for Elijah. And we're going to make one for Moses. What a fantastic idea. So we got to talk about what, what did they represent? So, so why Moses and why Elijah? There's a couple reasons. We're only going to talk about one today. Moses represented the law. Okay? Remember that. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. Jesus represents grace. Moses is the lawgiver. Who gave the law? Moses. Moses is the lawgiver. The prophet, Elijah, was the law enforcer. Guess what happened when you didn't obey? Fire! Judgment! Jesus is the law fulfiller. Lawgiver? Law enforcer, law fulfiller. Paul tells us, by the law is the knowledge of sin. See, the law brought condemnation. It lets you know what's wrong. Prophets let you know, hey, here's the punishment you're going to get, and by the way, you're going to be disintegrated today. You're not. But grace comes and says, hey, I did it for you. Here you go. You just got to receive it. It's a different message. And so Peter says this, let's, let's make all three of these equal. Let's make Moses equal to the prophets, equal to Jesus. While he was still speaking, he didn't even get this all out. So we don't find out till two verses later. But as he's saying, I've got a brilliant, the father says, that's stupid. That's not brilliant. It's dumb. 
the father cuts him off. It says, while he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. So think about this. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, Bob said today about it's time to move from Mount Sinai, that we're moving from Sinai into the promised land, which represents the finished works of Jesus. The promised land's not heaven because there were still battles to be fought in the promised land. You're not going to fight any battles in heaven. The promised land is the finished works of Jesus. Bob said it's time to move from that mountain. Did you know that Jesus switched mountains? Did you ever read Galatians? It says that these two covenants are like these two women, Hagar and Sarah. One was the Mount Sinai, one was Mount Zion. Jesus actually switched mountains. He's no longer on that mountain. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, if you read in, in uh, Exodus, it says, what was coming out of the cloud? Thunder and lightning, right? And fire and smoke. What color cloud emits lightning? Dark cloud, gray cloud, storm cloud. What kind of cloud came when Jesus was there? A bright cloud. This is a different cloud. Still the presence of God, but we've gone from the old to the new. It says, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, now where have we heard this before? This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Yeah, so when Jesus goes into the wilderness... And John says, I need to be baptized by you. Jesus says, permitted to be so, so all righteousness can be fulfilled, baptize me. And it says, he baptized him, and as he was coming up, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and remained on him. And the Father speaks from heaven and says, you are my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. You know the Father said that before the Son ever did a miracle? But the Father said that before Jesus ever did a supernatural work. You dads here today, do you think if you told your son that you're my son and whom I'm well pleased that he might actually, or your daughter might actually live it out if you spoke that over them? When Peter retells this story in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses, I think, 16 to 18, he retells about this. It says that how Jesus received honor when the Father spoke this over him. And I think there's some dads here today that need to speak some of these kind of words over your kids. See, the way the Father loved Jesus wasn't based on what he did. Because he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased before he ever did anything. And that's the same way Paul says that you're accepted in the beloved. That when you're in Christ, God loves you the same way he loved Jesus. And he loves you because of Jesus. And he loves you the same as Jesus. You're accepted in him, the beloved. He says, but here he says something different. Do you see something at the end of this, this sentence different than what he says in, in, at his baptism? At the baptism, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But here he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I can't hear you. Hear him. Hear him. Peter said, let's make a temple. One for Moses. 
One for Elijah. One for Jesus. God said, that's a dumb idea. This is my beloved son. Elijah is not my beloved son. Moses is not my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Hear him. See, what happens a lot of times is we try to listen to the law and the prophets that were written for under another covenant. Now, all of the law and prophets pointed to Jesus. Matter of fact, when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, it said he began at Moses and the prophets and shared how all of those things pointed to him. So that he is hidden there, and they point to him, but that's not how God speaks today. You look at me like you don't believe me. As the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid. Now all of a sudden, he goes from having a bright idea to feeling really stupid. Well, that was dumb. That was dumb. That was really stupid. See, God said, go to the next verse. God, who in various ways and at various times spoke in times past to the fathers by whom? God, who in various ways and at various times spoke in times past by the prophets to the fathers. How did God speak in times past? I'm, I'm, I'm not doing a good job teaching today. If you have, In times past, how did God speak? By the prophets. But in these, everybody say this, these last days. Now, have you ever heard this? We're living in the last days. Now, why do people say we're living in the last days? That's true. But why do people say we're living in the last days? Sin has gotten so bad. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. We're living in the last days. That's not what God says. God defined the last days, the days he dropped the prophet mic and picked up the Jesus mic. The last days started with Jesus. See, we try to define the last days by sin. God defined the last days by His Son. He says, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. See, you want to talk about a mic drop? That's the mic drop of all time. He didn't go, oh, 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 you know what? I think they need a little profit today. I think they need a little legal. Let me go pick it up. Uh-uh. He's got one microphone and one microphone only. That is Jesus. And it says, He has appointed Him, what? Heir of all things. The prophets and Moses weren't heir of all things. 
Jesus is. Everything Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine. And the Holy Spirit will take of what is mine and declare it to who? You. Everything Jesus has is yours. You are a co-heir with Jesus. It says, by whom he made the worlds. You've got the creator of the worlds. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. It said that he created everything through Jesus. You have the creator of the world speaking into your situation. You don't have somebody that that was a temporary lawgiver, law enforcer. You've got the law fulfiller, the creator of the world speaking into you. It says, next slide, it says, who being, when Jesus revealed, it says, who being the brightness of his glory. Jesus wasn't reflecting the glory of God. Do you see the difference? When Moses is up on the mount, he's talking to a dark cloud, he's talking to the presence of God, but the glory is hitting his face, and he's reflecting it. And over time, it disintegrates. Jesus was not reflecting the glory of God. Jesus was releasing the glory of God. That what's on the inside is ever increasing. What's on the inside will take you from one level to another. It's infinite in nature. It's transforming in nature. It never ends. He says He is the brightness of the glory of God, and He is the express image. He's the exact image character. It's, it's literally that He is the exact imprint of the Father. That if you ever want to study theology, the study of God, do you know who the best person to look at? Jesus. Jesus is perfect theology. Jesus is perfect. We sang this morning that you are perfect in all of your ways. Well, Jesus perfectly represented the Father. Everything He did. Everything He said. Everybody he touched. Everything, if you want to know, hmm, I wonder what God's will is in this situation. Well, let me see. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus... Oh, no, let's, oh, let's go back to the Ten Commandments. Let's, no, Jesus fulfilled that. Jesus perfectly represented the Father. He was the exact imprint of his nature, upholding all things by the word of his power. It's not the power of His Word, although it's, it says upholding. That's, did you know, like in the nucleus of an of a atom, they actually should blow apart? But guess what? They don't. Did you ever wonder why? Because He's upholding all things by the Word of His power that when He releases a rhema Word, it actually releases the supernatural power of God to keep things together that should be going apart. You think your marriage is going apart? Guess what he can do? You think your kids are running off? Guess what he can do? It says he can uphold all things. Does that include your kids? Does it include your marriage? Does it include your job? Everything, nature, and every by the word of his power. I'm excited today. You know what happened to me? When he by himself 
purged our sins. God is speaking not with Moses that gave the law and identified your sin, not with the prophet that pronounced judgment on your sin, but by the one who purged your sin. He paid for your sin. Before you ever committed it, he purged it. 2,000 years ago, in our time, but in eternity past, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, God looked in eternity future, saw every sin you'd ever commit, and said, I hate sin so much, and I love you so much, I'm going to punish my son for that sin, even though they haven't even committed it, and won't commit it for thousands of years from now. And when he finished it, he sat down. You've got the heir of all things. You've got the creator of all things. You've got the brightness of the glory of the Father. You've got the exact imprint of his nature. You've got the one who paid for your sin. That's the one God is speaking through today. Don't go making a tabernacle to Moses. Don't go making a tabernacle to the prophets. Hear him. How are you going to take something that, as I said earlier, that decreases in glory and expect to get an increase out of it? Oh, let's a, what you need is some more law. Oh, the, the, that's, that's a brilliant idea. You know why it's brilliant? Let me take something that's decreasing and try to get it to, it's like, like getting the, the river to go the other way. A river runs one way. Like, I'm going to take something going down and think it's going to take me up. The law will not transform you. God, who in various times and in various ways spoke in times past to our fathers through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through His Son. Here's what I want to tell you about that. When we preach a past times message in a last day's season, it produces condemnation, not transformation. That's what God told me this week. The law was a past time message. And when we preach a past time message in a last day season, we produce condemnation, not transformation. Condemnation never changed anybody. When they bring the woman caught in adultery, Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? She says, no one, my Lord. He says, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. See, Jesus never excused sin, but the power of no condemnation is the very thing that changes somebody. He didn't shame her into not sinning again. He didn't condemn her, gave her grace, and then she walked in the freedom that he provided and actually changed her life. 
gosh. I got to land this plane. Jesus said this. Remember he said, he said, among those born among women, in another passage he said, among the prophets there was none greater than who? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Now, he didn't do the miracles Elijah did, but I got to believe it because God's word said it. Right? He prepared the way of the Lord. He prepared... Uh, he, it said that you know, he, he was one crying in the wilderness to, to make straight the paths of the Lord, prepared the way. So that, that was a great, great thing. But Jesus said this. He said the law and the prophets were until John. So that when John came, there was a shift that took place. Guess what he did? Dropped the mic, and he picked up the Jesus mic. He said, the law and the prophets were until John, but since that time, how long has John the Baptist been dead? About the same amount of time Jesus came on the scene. Since that time, the kingdom is preached, and people are pressing to do what? Get in. When Moses came off of Mount Sinai with the tablets of stone, face shining. Guess what the people did? Ran. They ran. When Jesus descended off the hill with Peter, James, and John, you'd run right into the story of the, the, the father whose son uh, the, the couldn't cast the demon out. It said, when the people saw him, they were amazed and ran to him. Different mountain, different result. Condemnation repels. Conviction draws in. John the Baptist said this, and we apply it incorrectly so many times. John 3.30, he says, The law and the prophets were until John, and from that time the kingdom is preached and people are pressing to get in. John said, I must decrease, and you, Jesus, must increase. One was a decreasing glory. With Jesus, it's an increasing glory. John shut out an arrow that would never be picked up again. He was actually straddled between two dimensions in time. He's living under the old covenant, but he can see the reality of the new. He says, I need to be baptized by you. I need what you have, Jesus. Jesus said, time's not yet. But there's coming a day when people who are standing here will see the kingdom come in power. That's coming. We're in it now. He was straddled between two dimensions. Well, good. 
I'm going to finish. Give me 10 minutes. <clears throat> if you need to leave, you're free to leave. If you'd like to stay, you're free to stay. I'm going to fast forward to the end of the story in Luke 9. It says this. So after they come off the mountain, the father says, hear him. Don't hear them. They're heading into Samaria. It says Jesus' face is set like flint to go to Jerusalem. But when he comes to Samaria, it says this, it came to pass when time had come to be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Next slide. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, now here's another brilliant idea. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elijah did? So I think it's kind of amazing they thought they could actually call down fire from heaven. That's pretty cool. Like God, did, Jesus didn't even correct them for that thought. He didn't say, oh, you're... No. He said, they said, do you want us to call down fire like Elijah did? You can read the story in 2 Kings chapter 1. The king Amaziah of Samaria, same city, he gets hurt. And he, he, he says, go inquire of Beelzebub, the king, the lord of, or god of Ekron, whether I'm going to recover or not. And, and Elijah runs into him and said, well, because you didn't, is there no god in Israel? Because you tried to inquire of Beelzebub, the, the god of Ekron, you're going to die. And then so Eli, or, yeah, Amaziah sends three different groups of 50 people, and the first two... They go, man of God, come off the mountain. And Elijah says, if I'm the man of God, disintegrate. And they vaporized. The third one, he's like, man of God, are you okay? Yeah. And so, you know, Elijah did go to Amaziah and say, hey, you're going to die because you inquired of uh, another God and not the God of Israel. But what they say, he says, do you want us to call down fire on the Samaritans like Elijah? What's Jesus say? He turned and rebuked them and said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are. There was a time for the spirit of Elijah. There was a time for the spirit of Moses. I didn't get a kick out of that song, these are the days of Elijah. No, they're not. And the third line, these are the days of Moses. No, they're not. These are the days of Jesus. These are the last days. They're the days of Jesus. He said, you don't know what spirit you're of. The spirit of Elijah has passed. The spirit of Jesus has come. He said, I didn't come to destroy lives, but to save them. Same word destroys what Jesus used in John 10.10 when he said, the thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's not Jesus. He said, but I have come that they might have life and have more abundantly. Let's close with these last two verses. And then we'll just cut it short. We'll figure out how we're going to do it next time. The law brought condemnation, right? The ministry of condemnation. Jesus says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
John chapter 12 says this, the prophets brought, um, they were the law enforcers, they brought judgment, fire. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. I did not come to judge the world, but to save. Jesus goes on to say, he says, my words will judge you in the end. See, there's coming a time when that will happen. There's coming a time that if you don't make a decision, you will be judged. But for right now, if you accept Jesus, he's taken care of. That's the first step in transformation. The next step, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 999,998, a billion, is continuing to behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And he will progressively transform you from one degree of glory to another, even as by the Spirit. Your job is to behold. His job is to change. And I want to close. i got one more verse. I'll go to the very, go to the very end. <clears throat> I want to read no, one before that. <clears throat> and this is where Crystal... What Crystal said earlier, she said, I see somebody that's reaching up and God's reaching down. And When Jesus said this, after he told him this was a dumb idea, it said Jesus came and touched him and says, what's he say? Arise. Same word that he says to the, the lame guy when he says, arise, get off your mat. But this arise is in the passive tense, which means when Jesus touched them, he said, let yourself be lifted up. He's not making you get up off the ground yourself. He's actually allow yourself to be picked up by me. And that's what grace does. Jesus reaches down and picks you up wherever you're at, whatever level you're at. Allow yourself to rise. Allow yourself to be raised up. Allow yourself to be raised up and don't be afraid. 